Welcome to Fusion of Journalism, a podcast from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford. I'm Federica Cherubini, Director of Leadership Development at the Institute. This is a special series of our podcast, and its goal is to dive into the key findings of the Digital News Report 2023. Over six episodes, we'll explore this piece of research, the most comprehensive study of news consumption worldwide. As you probably know at this stage, the report is based on original survey data from 92,000 interviews across 46 markets. In this episode, I am joined by Nick Newman, lead author of the Digital News Report, and Rasmus Nielsen, director of the Reuters Institute. We will discuss some of the big headlines from the report, including how people are accessing news, perception of algorithms' role in news, subscription, news avoidance, and a whole lot more. Nick and Rasmus, welcome. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. So the report finds that the war in Ukraine and COVID-19 have just accelerated some structural shifts towards some more digital, mobile, and platform-dominated media environments. This is a 12th edition of the report, so this is something that the Institute has been tracking for more than a decade now. Nick, what are the big trends we are seeing in this regard? Well, as you say, it's been it's been twelve years, and uh, in each of those years, relentlessly, we've we've seen that sort of connection that audiences have with news brands uh, weaken, with sort of greater preference given to accessing news and consuming news via uh, tech platforms. That could be search, it could be social media, but it's also aggregators like Apple News. And people are doing that because of the convenience of those platforms and the relevance. And uh, one of the questions we ask is, um, do you prefer to start your news journey uh, directly or do you prefer to, to start it with one of these aggregators? And uh, the direct access has fallen uh, by around 10 percentage points and a lot over, over you know, the last five, six years. And, and every year it does the same thing. And that's primarily driven by um, the habits of younger people. And there are a few other sort of trends we've seen over the last 10 years which are playing into that, such as um, the increased reliance on mobile phones. It was it was pretty much computers when we when we started this 12 years ago. And again, that's increased the power of those platforms. It's increased the power of the apps where people are spending their time and young people in particular are spending their time. And it's quite hard to get a news app on the front page of a, a you know, front screen screen of a phone. Um, uh, so the direction of travel, I think, is 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 pretty clear and and it's relentless. And uh, you know, maybe Rasmus can say a little bit more about the, you know, what why this matters to publishers. Um, yeah, Rasmus, these trends that Nick described seem, as Nick said, very ingrained and perhaps um, irreversible. Um, why should news publisher sit up and take notice? I mean, it's a super challenging environment. Um, as and as with every challenging environment. You need to know what it looks like to be able to navigate it. It's a challenging environment in the sense that um, when publishers pursue the opportunities that platforms offer to try to reach uh, people where they actually spend their time online, social media, search, messaging applications, video sharing sites, and the like, at the same time, they're contributing to the commercial success of companies that they compete with for attention, that they compete with for advertising, that they compete with, in some cases, for consumer spending as well. Um, so that in itself is already uh, a, a tricky relationship and one where the balance between platform opportunities and platform risks is one that every publisher has to think carefully about what's right for their editorial mission, what's right for their business model and funding model. 
And more broadly than that, it's also clear that um, some of these platform environments, probably particularly social media, Facebook, uh, to some extent, uh, other environments, Instagram, YouTube, uh, TikTok, are quite cacophonous environments uh, where uh, publishers' journalism is presented alongside personal uh, forms of expression, but also advertising, rumor, misinformation, uh, even coordinated attacks against some individual journalists, often women and, and, and journalists of, of color from other uh, minoritized groups, um, and coordinated attacks by political actors and others who want to undermine the independence and credibility of journalism while using these platforms to try to reach out to to people that they want to cater to. So it's a very challenging environment. It challenges the uh, credibility of journalism. It challenges the funding models of journalism. At the same time, if journalism wants to be for everybody, serve the whole public, it has to recognize, as Nick says, that a lot of people are platform first in terms of their uh, media use. Uh, and for those news media who decide that they want to reach them, they have to think about how they can reach them also on these platforms. Nick, in this social media um, environment, social media itself has also seen some important change in the last few years as the use of Facebook for news is declining. The use of visual platform like TikTok, for example, is growing, especially among young um, people. What does the report tell us about this change? Yeah, it's 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 quite a significant change, I think. I mean, if you look at Facebook, 2016, uh, 42% said they access news via Facebook. That's down to 28%. And the, the networks that are growing are the visual networks, the, the, the sort of mobile-first networks, if you like, Instagram, TikTok, uh, YouTube slightly different, it's a, but it, but it's it's definitely about video, which is uh, I think really uh, another strong theme in this year's report. Um, and I think what's interesting about some of these networks is that they work slightly differently and they're very personality driven as well. So many of the people who are making an impact in these networks aren't necessarily journalists, but, but you know they might be social media influencers or celebrities. And that's another shift we're seeing, and and therefore the culture and the language and the tone and the way in which these networks work is different from sort of first generation social networks. Uh, so I think that raises you know a number of challenges for media companies in terms of how do you engage in these different kinds of networks, and and particularly about attracting and engaging young people. And in terms of news, which kind of news are people consuming on TikTok and Instagram? Well, I mean, the first thing says people aren't primarily there for news. They're there to, you know, to have fun, connect with friends and and consume different kinds of content. But um, over the last few years, we've seen a lot more news on TikTok, um, partly because of COVID and people were at home during COVID, um, partly because of, of, of Ukraine, eyewitness news, political news. Um, so, for example, in Kenya, TikTok has played a huge role in the in the recent Kenyan election. Uh, including um, disinformation, of course, as well. And actually, just recently, last couple of weeks in Thailand, um, you had a whole uh, you know, new party uh, winning the largest number of seats, and they had a really sophisticated social media campaign, really connected with young people, uh, and TikTok was a big part of that. Are audiences paying attention to journalists and news organizations on those platforms? Well, we asked... We asked that specifically this year. Where do you pay attention in these platforms? And as as I say, you know, it it is it is different, and it's much more influencer based in platforms like TikTok and Snapchat. Uh, whereas in the traditional, can I call them the traditional social networks, legacy social networks like Facebook and Twitter, 
then journalists and mainstream media, you know, the expectations are that a lot of the news that's going to be created and consumed will be from journalists and and mainstream media organizations. So that's another difference and, as I say, a challenge for media companies. Rasmus, with news delivery becoming ever more platform-dominated, the role that algorithms play in news has become even more important. Do online news users understand the role of algorithms in news distribution and how do they feel about them? Well, I think if we're being honest, uh, the, the fundamental truth is probably is that none of us understand the role of algorithms uh, in content discovery and recommendation online. Uh, sometimes it seems including people who work on the underlying technologies at the technology company. Some of these things may just be too big and complicated for, for, for any one of us to really wrap our heads around. Um, that said, uh, in the past, when we've sort of tried to research people's sort of top line understanding uh, of this, um, uh, using the case of Facebook in the research we did a few years ago, um, there are uh, some members of the public, about three in 10 across the markets we looked at at the time, who, who have a basic understanding uh, of, of how um, automated uh, recommendations uh, on a social media uh, site uh, work on the basis of uh, uh, computer analysis uh, of, of what you might be interested in. Um, interestingly, there are as many people who give uh, wrong answers, who say that it's random what you see or that uh, it's selected by journalists who work for the social companies or journalists who work for the outlets behind the content that you see. And then there are 40% uh, of our respondents at the time who just said, we don't know, uh, which, which is, is, is probably often uh, the more accurate summary of where many of us are, I would say myself too, in, in, in some situations. So there's not to nog anybody. Um, this year, we have, have tried to approach it in a little bit in a different way and just to, to ask people about their appreciation of these tools that they demonstrably rely on more and more on. And it turns out that people are sort of quite skeptical. So we ask people um, about whether different ways of, of getting news are good ways to get uh, news. And despite the fact that so many people across the world, clear majorities rely on various forms of automatic selection, whether through social or search or aggregators, at the very same time as people rely on it, it's just three in 10 who say that automatic selection based on past consumption, which is sort of one of the, the underlying approaches of these technologies is a good way to get news. Uh, and as many <laughs> disagree. Uh, so. People are quite skeptical uh, uh, of these uh, approaches to, to getting news and, and their concerns when, when queried in more detail is that they will be missing out uh, on important stories or they will be missing out on alternative points of view um, uh, that, that, that aren't being surfaced to them through these algorithms. So I think there's a very profound public skepticism of many of these systems. Now, as many journalists know from their own personal experience, but also by, from research by others and, and, and indeed ourselves included, that doesn't necessarily always translate into a great appreciation of journalism. So it's sort of roughly the same number of people who say that uh, news selection by editors or journalists is a good way to get news online. So we live in a sense in an age of what we in some of our work is called generalized skepticism, where 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 people may have individual sources that they trust or individual journalists that they trust, but in general, they regard most news and certainly most news they see on platforms with great skepticism. Rasmus, another big part of the report every year is looking at the business of journalism and, and paying for online news, for example. Um, so as inflation continues to grip many countries around the world, um, are there signs that pressures on household budgets are putting a squeeze on online subscription for news? 
I mean, I think the good news uh, for publishers who uh, want to base their their financial sustainability, at least in part on reader revenue, is that we are in a much better place than we were, say, five or 10 years ago. Um, in many countries, there now is a significant minority, a minority, but a large number of people who are demonstrably willing to pay for at least some of the online news that they consume. It wasn't obvious that it would go that way. Most of us have access to an abundant uh, uh, plethora of, of sources that are free at the point of consumption. And now across the markets where we track this systematically, 17% say that they pay for, for online news in some form in, in the last year, at least some of the online news that they consume. Um, at the same time, we need to recognize that that top line hasn't changed. Uh, so we aren't really seeing the growth in that top line and that the dynamics are very clearly still when it takes most market when it comes to the sort of classic subscription to a single title. It's very heavily a limited number of upmarket national brands that uh, are winning at the subscription uh, business, even as many other titles really struggle to build a critical mass of paying subscribers. Um, in terms of the people who pay, it's it's clear that inflation and the cost of living crisis is leading a lot of people to think about uh, their overall spend. Perhaps they see on their credit card statement or bank statement, there are lots of subscriptions by now, many of them for entertainment and other forms of online services, and perhaps in, in some cases also one or two for news. And people are really reconsidering, is this value for money? Are, are, am I going to let this uh, subscription continue when the trial period uh, comes to an end and the price suddenly jumps uh, to a much higher price point, perhaps even more than I'm paying for, say, music or, or, or video in some cases? Um, and in that sense, there is a lot of churn. Um, those who stay uh, tend to be generally affluent, highly interested, high levels of formal education, quite a sort of upper crust, quite elite uh, audience. And this, of course, in turn, raise a whole set of other questions about um, who journalism is oriented towards serving. Is it mostly people like me uh, or, or is there something for everybody? Um, how much do online subscription levels differ from country to country and what might explain these differences? There are really wild, uh, wide variation, even across otherwise reasonably sort of similar high-income uh, democracies. Uh, so in in some countries, it's it's still you know less well under ten percent who who say that they subscribe uh, to a, 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 an online news source or pay for online news. And in in a few markets, mostly in in northern Europe, we're looking at sort of twenty or thirty or or, or in a few cases almost forty percent of of online news users saying that they pay for online online news. Um, some of the reasons why the Nordic countries are ahead are sort of things that other publishers can't really do anything about. These are countries with a long history of paid print newspaper subscriptions. You can't go back in time if you are trying to do this in France or Italy or elsewhere. You can't go back and create that tradition and then benefit from it uh, today. Um, but but I think other things are perhaps things that that publishers elsewhere may may want to may, may want to look at or consider, which is that. Many of the publishers in these markets have had a long-term pay strategy that they have built incrementally over time, and they have held with that course and not um, uh, been caught between the sort of two chairs of trying to get reach and uh, and a sort of distinct, credible, pay-worthy uh, offer at the same time. Um, and I think we are seeing that strategy uh, pay off for quite a lot of, uh, of titles. I think it's really important to remember subscriptions is a long game. It's not something that comes overnight and publishers who want to go down that route need to be prepared for quite a lot of short-term challenges and, and, and even financial pain if they want to pursue that long-term gain. And even then, of course, there are no guarantees, but they can learn something from that long-term commitment 
the focus on editorial, distinct editorial quality and relentless use of, of data and analytics to optimize for, for reader value that, that we've seen with some of the Nordic publishers. This can only bring me to talk about news avoidance and news participation, Nick. Um, so news avoidance is down only very slightly this year from 2022, um, but people are still selectively avoiding news at near record levels. You look at some ways um, that people avoid the news, what do they say? Yeah, we talked a lot about news avoidance last year, and we saw those really significant increases in 2017. Um, and this year, we really wanted to understand a bit more about what was going on, what you know, how do people avoid the news? And, and what we found was these sort of two slightly overlapping groups, but um, but I think slightly different groups. So, so one group of people who were trying to avoid all news, and so that might be, you know, when the news was going to come on on the radio or the television, they would switch channels. You know, they would actively. Uh, try and get away from it or scroll past the news and social media. Uh, and, you know, those people generally were are less interested in news and less interested in politics in, in general. And then there's a second group that we, uh, you know, that, that are really doing more specific types of avoidance, and it's really trying to reduce the amount of news. And I think in a way, this is about dealing with the overload. So they are consuming news, they are interested, but they are also trying to ration themselves by perhaps um, you know, cutting out news first thing in the morning or last thing at night or turning off notifications or avoiding particular topics of news. Um, so a significant proportion are avoiding news that makes them feel depressed or makes them feel anxious, for example. Does the report offer any insights into what publishers can do to address the issue of news avoidance? Well, that's one of the things we want to go on and try and try and get at. It's very difficult because it's a complicated subject and there are, you know, there are many different reasons and many different groups here. But I think one of the things we, we did was we asked about different kinds of journalistic activity and approaches, which people have talked about as being potential solutions. So things like, you know, more positive news um, or more news that offers solutions rather than just points how the problems and people like this idea. They may just be saying this in a survey, but um, certainly amongst avoiders, um, these came out at the very top along with explanation, better explanation of the news. So I, th I think this would work with, 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 with some groups and obviously publishers are trying some of these approaches. What was interesting is the news that avoiders liked the least was the uh, constantly updating big stories of the day. And... Uh, for people who never avoid the news, that's the news they liked the most. So you've really got this dilemma where, as Rasmus was indicating, quite often news sites are sort of set up to super serve people who are really interested in news, but that also seems to be turning turning other people away. And I think this is really where, you know, personalization as well as taking content out through different channels um, are the sort of tactics that might be more effective going forwards. Yeah, that's a different, difficult thing to balance. Um, Rasmus, when we look at news participation, the report shows that the percentage of people commenting on news sites and social media has declined recently in many countries. Why do you think this is happening? I mean, I think it's very clear that for a very significant number of people, it's because they have a very bad experience of it on social media that uh, often takes a very laissez-faire approach to content moderation um, and, a, and a hands of uh, approach to responding to harassment uh, uh, of uh, of users uh, in ways that really disproportionately affect women uh, and racialized and ethnic minorities, religious minorities in, in many parts of the world. 
So an intensely bad experience is, uh, is, 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 is one reason for, for some people to have a less um, uh, participatory approach to news, at least in these sort of relatively quasi-public spaces uh, uh, such as social media. Um, at the same time, more broadly, um, I think we, we should also remember that there are most people in our survey, at least, um, would say that their experience of, of having a more sort of participatory approach to online news is sort of neither positive nor negative, 40%, uh, or, or, or even positive for, for quite a lot of people. Um, so I think for, for that part of the public, it's maybe a bit of the novelty wearing off. Uh, it's maybe also a, a bit of sort of journalists and news media being a bit more cautious because a lot of, of people have been burned by, by these bad experiences and by coordinated attacks and like closing diet comment sections, taking a, a, a less participatory approach to how they use social media more as sort of marketing and top of funnel tools than, than as ways of engaging in, in, in open audience engagement or, or using it for audience engagement, but in more closed forums where they can control a bit more who, who, who's involved and focus more on serving uh, people who have a more constructive relationship um, with the brand. Now, um, the the broader backdrop, I think, is 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 one that is aligned with some of the things that we have found in our work uh, elsewhere, which is in many markets across the world, we see uh, a, a decline over time in in how interested people say they are in news. Uh, many news organizations report declining levels of use of of their products, in particular after the sort of the hyper news cycle of. Uh, Trump and um, the war in Ukraine and, and COVID uh, have come to an end. Now we'll see uh, with, with with the coming elections in, in, in lots of places around the world how that pans out. Um, but the reason I mention that here is that it's not just that online participation in our data is declining, uh, online participation with news. Uh, it's also offline participation, which is down uh, seven percentage points uh, since 2018 to, to 32%. So lots of people talk about the news with, with friends and family and colleagues offline, but even that number is declining. So uh, in many parts of the world, of course, it's in part because news deals with polarizing and sensitive topics, and you may just not want to talk about that, neither online nor offline, because it might lead to arguments you'd rather avoid, or it might risk sort of creating bad blood with people you really respect and like in, in, in your social life. So I think we are seeing quite a lot of people being more cautious. Um, and as a result, the ones who are engaging are less and less representative of the public at large, and they tend to be heavily partisan, um, and, uh, and they tend to be uh, more male and more interested in news. Uh, and in that sense, they, they really do not represent the public at large, let alone public opinion. Um, that doesn't mean they're not important. It doesn't mean that, that not some journalists and news organizations can't or shouldn't engage with them, but it's really, really important to always remember that the sort of discussions that play out around commenting on and sharing of news uh, in online environments are not uh, representative of the public at large. Um, changing slightly on the, on the topic, later in this podcast series, we'll, we'll focus specifically um, on the role of podcast um, in news. Um, but Nate, just briefly, um, are news podcasts managing to find a sizable audience in the wider podcast market in general? What kind of news podcasts are people listening to? Yeah, I mean, audio and podcasting uh, is growing. It's definitely interesting to publishers because they reach a younger audience and uh, an audience that's quite upmarket, which also appeals to advertisers. And it's a rare growth story, um, uh, so, albeit quite slow. So, so um 
Uh, what we've done this year is really just look at news podcasts specifically, and I won't go to it in detail because we've got a separate episode. We've categorized it, looked at it across countries. Um, but just sort of three quick things that I think are interesting about um, what we found. So I think, again, it plays into this um, personality-driven uh, approach that we're increasingly seeing. So many of the most popular news podcasts are personality-led um, rather than you know brand-led. Uh, I think... Uh, secondly, it's a disruption to broadcasters. So we see, you know, um, uh, digital-born brands. We see other publishers um, really able to compete with broadcasters in, in in this space. In many cases, so new competition. And then we're just seeing it being really hard to know what a podcast is anymore. You know, it started off; it was really clear it was about audio and it, it had particular formats. But increasingly, it's mixing up with video. So you know, YouTube's a really popular distribution platform for podcasts now and many audio podcasts are now filmed uh to get attention in that social media ecosystem we talked about earlier so so it's a really really interesting and fast moving space and to all our listeners um we as we said we will do a specific episode of the podcast on this so come back for that um rasmus moving on to trust which is another big topic that the report um looks at um, a couple of years ago, we saw trust in news increase as many came to rely on journalists to keep them informed about COVID-19. Now, trust is down a bit again this year in many countries. How should we read these figures? I think we saw during the pandemic a uh, rallying around uh, institutions in, in, in many parts of the world where in a moment of crisis and uncertainty, in, in lots of different parts of society, we saw some increases in trust in, in news media and journalism, also in government, in, in health authorities and scientists, even as, of course, some people uh, really saw more and more active distrust towards these institutions. That rallying around institutions has dissipated since. The news agenda has returned to being focused uh, on divisive and contentious issues, uh, often dominated by politicians that many people don't really like at all and perhaps don't particularly don't like if they disagree with their their political views. So that sort of COVID bump uh, has dissipated. Um, more broadly, I think the thing we always should keep in mind when we uh, think about trust is that trust is not the same as trustworthiness. Um, and while everybody has the right and the ability to form their own opinion about whether they think news is worth trusting most of the time or whether indi any individual news brand is worth trusting, um, public opinion about this, um, whether individual uh, members of the public's subjective opinion or in the aggregate, the way we study in the digital news report, is not a measure of the trustworthiness of news overall, let alone the trustworthiness uh, of any one news organization. What it does give it is a really important, I think, indication in the social contract between journalism and the public. Uh, and we find again this year that in some parts of the world, that social contract is really strong countries like Finland, uh, some other countries in, in Europe and elsewhere, where a clear majority of the public say they trust most news most of the time. Many brands enjoy uh, high trust. In many other parts of the world, that social contract is much more fraught. Um, and while most people are selectively trusting, they, they, they have some news brand that they trust, they are less trusting of news overall or even actively distrusting of news overall. Rasmus, the report presents a very complex set of findings, and we briefly went um, through through some. Do you think there is an overall takeaway for how news media should be approaching the rapidly changing news consumption landscape depicted in the report? 
it's very important always to stress that um, every context is different. Uh, every news organization is different in terms of its editorial ambitions, in terms of its funding models, in terms of the community that it aims uh, to serve. And everybody needs to make the decisions they feel are right for them and for their context and, and for the people, uh, the parts of the public that they that they want to serve. Um, and some of these differences are very, very pronounced between very privileged parts of the world and, and very, very difficult parts of the world, between very privileged news organizations and people who do very difficult work under very challenging circumstances. Um, there are some differences in terms of how people use media around the world and a lot of differences in terms of how they think about news around the world. But also, I think, a really clear sort of overall global trend, uh, which is... Um, uh, this ongoing move towards a more digital, mobile, and platform-dominated media environment where people who are very skeptical of the platforms they rely on nonetheless continue to rely on them. Um, and where, as Nick said at the outset, uh, however unwelcome this is from the point of view of journalists and news media and editors who, who have a very challenging job of navigating this environment, we need to recognize that this change does seem to be one way. And that while it's true as younger people who are very fond of mobile media and of visual-led social platforms and video sharing sites, even though it is true that as they come of age, their content interests will change, I don't think we have many reasons to believe that their platform preferences will change all that much. I mean, the same way that uh, someone like myself uh, who, um, uh, you know, came of age in, in, in an age of landlines uh, and then got mobile phones, there is no reason to believe that I will suddenly want a landline instead of a mobile phone just because I have a kid. Uh, or the same way that people who grew up as children with black and white television and then enjoyed color television all of a sudden want uh, black and white uh, televisions just because they buy a house. Uh, I, I think we need to sort of recognize that though people's content interests are very different, people's perception of the media environment varies enormously across the world, and rightly so, um, that there are some very strong, broad trends in uh, the direction of travel in terms of how people find and access information, however unwelcome that is for many publishers, because it is a super challenging environment. Without necessarily naming any names, but if you think about the news organizations from around the world that are successfully negotiating these challenges, why? what would you say they have in common? How, how are they doing this? I mean, everyone can succeed in many different ways and... Uh, you know, I think it's really up to journalists and and members of the public to judge the successfulness of of news organizations. You know, the things that I appreciate as a member of the public won't be the same as everybody else. Um, the, the things that any one news organizations aspire to won't be the same as as every one of their competitors and peers. Um, that said, I think a sort of a common denominator of a lot of the organizations that make journalism possible is the idea that, um, financial sustainability is a precondition for editorial independence, not a sufficient one, but a, but a, but a necessary one. Um, and I do think that we are seeing uh, a growing number, small but growing number, both of digital-born entrants, but also of legacy titles reinventing themselves, who are carving out a space in this super challenging environment, uh, offering very distinct, uh, high-value ad uh, journalism. Uh, being very focused on being extremely clear about who they are for uh, and really trying to meet those people where they are and use data and analytics to continually uh, judge whether the journalism they do is great in the eyes of the members of the public that they want to serve 
or uh, primarily great in the eyes of the journalists who actually practice it, because of course the last thing matters enormously. But at the end of the day, journalism exists in the context of its audience, and the value is created in the relationship between journalism and the people who rely on it. And uh, and I think we are seeing more and more news organizations really put that at the heart of how they practice their editorial mission, but also how they build their funding model. Nick, in 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 this challenging environment, Rasmus just gave us um, some positivity to look at who who is those that are doing it well. What are the things that they are focusing on, and and why they might be successful. Um, is there for you anything in the report that particularly surprised you or may I even say anything that suggested that there is a light at the end of the tunnel for news media? Um, what would you say is your takeaway? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's been a tough year and the report to some extent um, reflects those challenges. Um, but, you know, as as we've said, there are, there are many parts of the world where journalism is doing an amazing job, where it's very highly trusted, where there's a group of publishers who are making money and delivering high quality journalism and adapting to this new world, which I think, you know, you could summarize as being about building lasting and long-term relationships through podcasts, newsletters, you know, new formats, not hold not not holding on to everything that that's come from the past, but actually really leaning into some of the trends that we've we've talked about. And so that inspires me. You know, I think in any change, it's difficult, but there's also huge opportunities. And uh, and I think we, we 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 see this every year, not just in the data that we collect, but actually in the the country pages where, you know, we what we hear there is the stories of industry, um, really adapting and changing and finding new paths through this difficult environment. Fantastic. I like ending with a with a note of positive. Um, thank you so much, um, Rasmus and Nick, for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. This podcast was the first in a series looking at findings from our Digital News Report 2023. Listen to all upcoming episodes on Spotify or Apple Podcast. If you want to read the report in full, you can find it online at digitalnewsreport.org slash 2023. And if you don't want to miss any news from the Institute, subscribe to our weekly newsletter by clicking the link on our Twitter bio or on our homepage. This was Future of Journalism, a podcast by the Reuters Institute. I'm Federica Perubini, and we'll be back soon.